0: And turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Revelation 21, verse 9. I've got to tell you, I was quite ambitious about how far we'd get, and we're going to get to verse 14. So, um, sorry about that. And now, God's Word, Revelation 21, verse 9. This is the Word of God. Now, came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the, radiant, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have before us your truth. Father, we're glad that it's certain And we pray, Father, that from Your truth, Your Spirit would work to give us good understanding of what it means to be almost home. Father, that it brings glory to Your Son, Jesus. So magnify Him now, we pray, by Your Spirit. uh, Give us understanding and application of Your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Think of the most magnificent scene Your eyes have ever had in view. Probably in person, but it could be in pictures. Maybe you think of the mountains of North Georgia. Maybe you think of the Rockies or even the Alps. Uh, Maybe it's an ocean. Maybe it's a lake somewhere. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon. Or going the other direction, maybe it's a flower garden with great diversity in it. Now think of the most incredible city you've ever visited. Maybe you enjoy Charleston or Savannah, New York City or Washington, D.C., Paris, London. Nitro, West Virginia. I don't know. Whatever it is you're visualizing, what we're about to see in our text is a far more magnificent view uh, and a far more incredible city. It's a holy city, and it's our eternal home. And like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress traveling to the celestial city, John allows us to see uh, it in the distance so we can know we're almost home so that we will keep going. You see, the story that began in Genesis in the garden is coming to an ending. And a new story is about to begin. Uh, remember, it was not long after the garden that people began to live as community together uh, in cities. Even as God made us for, for fellowship with Him, people sought the fellowship of one another in the city for a sense of community and to work together. The first people who read Revelation lived in seven cities in Asia Minor in Turkey. Some earlier readers probably included those from Jerusalem who had been scattered across the empire after Rome destroyed Jerusalem in seventy a d City life is what all the people seem to know best. Richard Bachham declares their attitude might be similar to what you see in cities today. He said most cities of the, of the citizens of the great cities of the province of Asia would have thought it possibly fully human only in the public life of a city. Some of you go back and understand that Ava Gabor's mindset in Green Acres, and the rest of you don't know who that is. All right. Um, but what now? For the Jewish Christians, 70 AD is the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. A city now is a pile of rubble, and it leaves a longing in their heart. For the Gentile Christians who become believers, the cities they live in now are a place where they're they're outsiders when it comes to business and friendship. Remember, they're not participating in the pagan rituals that that almost are required to do business. And and as followers of Christ, they begin to live a lifestyle that's, that's quite different. The cities become a hostile place. Yet God's word reminds us to seek the welfare of the cities. And that's true today. Cities are still the center of commerce, of art, of politics, of people living in close proximity to one another. But our great cities are also marred by moral decadence and sin and rebellion against God. And they've become an increasingly hostile place for the followers of Christ. Holy they are not. Many global cities are marred by crime and poverty. And again, that reminds us all the more of the great need for the gospel. For evangelism to seek their welfare. But now, what's John telling us? He says there's, there's a new city. And it's a city not made with human hands that Abraham and Sarah longed for. A city where they can be at home in a flourishing community and enjoy beautiful earth. Yet it's a better city than they've ever known. We've already seen there are no tears in the city, there's no sickness, there's no sorrow. There's no sin. A city far more magnificent and incredible and beautiful than one can ever imagine. And it's coming down, we saw, from heaven to earth. And friends, it is a city and it is for us. And the reality is we are almost home. You know, oftentimes, as believers, believers were ridiculed for having uh, talk of heaven and people pictured it as just being up there sitting on clowns and, and playing harps and stuff. Now, we're going to see in the weeks ahead that's not the case. Far from it. Reminds us of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, "There's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps." The answer to such people is: if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns of gold, etc., is, of course, merely a symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. People take these symbols literally and might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant for us to lay eggs. All right. So, this is a city. So amazing. John's grasping for words to describe what it's like. And, and that's what we've seen he's, he's been doing throughout Revelation. And we, we were introduced to it in the first eight verses. Now we're going to go through it in in a little more detail uh, in the weeks ahead, Uh, the journey where we are almost home. So let's go to the text and see. One of the angels that John's already met, he's one of the angels who had the bowls of the the last plagues, uh, comes back on the scene for a second time, and he shows John this this new city of Jerusalem. Pick it up in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, previously we saw uh, that John had been taken into the wilderness to view Babylon um, uh, by one of the other angels who held one of these bowls. Uh, And we saw it was an amazing city. And when he saw that city, he saw it as the great prostitute, you may remember, sitting on many waters. Very quickly, John tells us those, those waters are people. People from all over the earth who've rejected Jesus. And then we saw and watched that city be destroyed. Now, John is about to contrast that. Uh, and what he shows is so, so spectacular. Now this time, the, this, this angel takes him to a high mountain uh, to give him this brand new perspective. Uh, and, and we should notice, it's really called two different things. One is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. And that's what the env- angel invites John to see. Yet when John looks, what does he see? He sees a city. He sees the new Jerusalem, the whole city of Jerusalem. Now, the angel's not pulling a switcheroo on John, all right? As we've seen before, he's given a a dual picture that we want to grasp. Keeping in mind, these are symbols. You know, one of the great Christian doctrines is our union with Christ. As believers, we are in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. To help us understand that we, we have marriage where a man and a woman have union. They're one, as, as Moses and Paul teach us. He explains, John, Paul explains it as, as a picture of our union with Christ. Now John's given application of that. Our preparation for and longing for the church's marriage to Christ that we were invited to back in chapter 19 with the wedding supper. Now once again, as we think about this, we're drawn back to the prophet Isaiah. He's the one who prepares us for the expectation of Jerusalem as a bride prepared for uh, a husband. In Isaiah 62, we read, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall not be no more termed, be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Thinking about our identity. Dwell on what that says. God delights in us. God rejoices over us. I love how David Strain put it. He said, Heaven will be our eternal wedding day, a world of love, of the sweetest communion between our hearts and Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. The world to come will be overflowed by, overrun by, it will be a deluge of love. This new creation will be a city. It will be a gift. It will be a glorious wedding celebration. See, ultimately, the people of God, the church, finds itself in fellowship with Jesus, in complete union with Christ in this new recreated earth. And the marriage imagery, which we find over and over again throughout God's Word, gives us the closest possible relationship to Christ. We already saw here twice in Revelation 21. In verse 3, they will be uh, his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. So the Genesis 17 promise made to Abraham comes to pass, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. It's that idea that that Peter picks up um, with, with other Old Testament words. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, we're the people of God. We're the bride of Christ. And this new creation is also a city, it's a community of people. This is not some architectural wonder uh, coming down from heaven empty of people. All right? This is people. This is a city where all who have, have died before us will come with Jesus. And it's not like the cities we've known. It's a holy city. A city where there's no more sin. A city set apart for the people of God. You know, The, the elimination of sin is going to have ramifications beyond which we, we, we can only imagine. Remember how Zechariah put it? Uh, he said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. And for many of us back in the day we played in the streets. We don't probably tell kids to do that anymore, but we did wiffle ball, kickball, foursquare. And we did it without any fear. But that's just a taste. What's coming is forever. And it's better than we can imagine. Again, what John's going to write is in symbolic terms, he's doing his best to describe eternity in the present. And he says, The holy city has the glory of God, the radiance like a, a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Friends, the single distinguishing mark of the new city, the holy city, is the glory of God. And how's that glory displayed, though? Notice, we've already seen it, the city is a bride. The city is the people of God. And these people are described as a rare jewel with a wall and, and, and gates on each side. These are the people that make up the holy city. The identity of the new Jerusalem combines the, the members of the universal church across time and space. Old Testament believers are represented by the names of the 12 tribes of Israel that are inscribed on the gates of the city, how you get in. Uh, uh, and believers after the cross are represented by the names of the 12 apostles written on the foundations of the walls. And there are so many people we've already seen throughout Revelation from all the nations of the earth that nobody can count them. It includes all of our loved ones we have known who are believers. But it also includes our ancestors who are believers and our descendants who will be believers that, that we've never met. So let's think about it. The, the glory, the holiness of God is on full display in this city. Yet it's made up of the people of God. And so this combined image of, the, of a bride and a city show us that God is even now perfecting a people for, his, to, for himself to live in his city. He's completing the work in each one of us that has already begun individually and he's doing collectively uh, for us. Uh, those whom he's justified are what? Are sanctified and glorified. Your know, bride does not typically come down the aisle until she's made a lot of preparation. I've noticed that over the years. Uh, just the right dress, the right flowers, the right hair, the right makeup, fully adorned. And she invites just the right guests. The New Jerusalem is only populated by holy citizens whom God has fully adorned. And friends, this is why we we strive for holiness now, without which Hebrews tells us no one will see the Lord. I'm going to say something that might be shocking for some of you. It certainly will be shocking for the world. And it's this. Our being holy is far more important than our being happy to God. Feelings of happiness is what the world's all about today. I'm entitled to be happy. I deserve to be happy and on my terms. But you notice it's never called the happy city. It's called the holy city over and over again. See, if making us happy were God's priority, then he would have eliminated tears and suffering in this life. He wouldn't wait until the next. He would make us healthy and wealthy right now. You know, all of us are able to go down Tanner's Mill Road today and purchase that home that's available for a mere $15 million, maybe 15 and a half, all right? You know, the same year we built our house, three miles down the road, they built that house. Um, uh, and it's got five bedrooms, in case you want to know, four and a half baths, 10,665 square feet on a mere 446 acres, all right? Uh, its most recent use was by, for, for a television studio last year. And any buyer who goes there, your monthly payment's estimated to be about $94,000 a month. Just so you know what you're going to be spending. But you see, God's purposes for us are much greater, they're much grander. God's working in each of us to prepare us for, yes, endless eternal happiness. That's true. But notice he's doing it. In the context of perfect holiness. And that's what the world misses out on. Here's what people struggle to understand we cannot truly have happiness without being made holy. And the only reason we as a church are holy, set apart to reflect God's glory, and you see, that's our goal, is because of what Christ has done. Think about what God's word says about Jesus and glory and us. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Then Paul tells us, in 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we watch Christ, we watch how he lives, and we see his glory. So what happens? Back it up another chapter in 2 Corinthians. Paul describes the process. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. And what does that glory look like? Well, holiness and how we are to live, but we're set apart to God. Now, holiness is not a somber, restricted way of life. We've said before, holiness is simply walking with Jesus, guided by his word, living a life of love. That's holiness. Day by day, God's working in us as we do that to make us reflect his glory to the watching world. That's what he set us apart for. Think about that. It's not for our glory, but for the glory of God. Set apart for a special use to display that glory through holiness. Simply walking with Jesus. Think back again to, to Revelation 19. We said the bride's been enabled to perform righteous deeds and, with which to clothe ourselves in eternity. So seeking to be holy now is preparing us for what eternity is going to be like. That's the new Jerusalem, a holy place set apart by God. So we should seek that holiness now. A holiness fueled by God's saving grace. A holiness empowered by God's sustaining grace. His empowering grace, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and working in us through His Word to make us more like Jesus as He set us apart to walk with Him to be the light of His Word, through the light of His Word. Go back to the wedding analogy. Jesus died on the cross to bring this moment that we're witnessing here in Revelation 21 to to, to pass, to full realization. He's been working across the ages to sanctify and prepare his bride by his word and spirit till the day, this day would dawn at last. It's what he's doing actually right now among us. He's preparing his bride for a wedding day. Think of all the money our culture spends on covering up wrinkles and uh, spots and blemishes. All wanting to look better, all right? Well, I present to you the ultimate cleansing product. One that will take away every spot from you, every wrinkle from your face, every blemish, until we are at last perfectly holy. And that is the saving and sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. One day, when that work is, is finally complete, the city comes down, the marriage supper begins, and there will be no more sin. No more sorrow, no more death, but only joy for all eternity, we will be home. Now, Why does God do all this for us? So that God may dwell among us, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. Because our hope is really not merely in a place where sin and sorrow are no more. See, our hope is in God Himself, whose presence erases death, erases pain, erases sin. Remember, God Himself is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is our eternal home. There's so much more to see in the weeks ahead. And friends, we're almost there. Almost home. So what about us? Well, being almost home gives us hope for what God's doing in us now, which in turn gives us strength to walk with Him. Friends, that's holiness. It's not just some stuffy lifestyle. It's walking with Jesus in a lifestyle of love guided by His Word. That's it. Because that's what He sets us apart for. God does not save us with the intent that we wallow in the sins of this world. Rather, we find delight in Him. And reflecting His glory to the world around us by walking with Him. See, that's the impact salvation should have on us. Uh, Realizing we are set apart for God's use. He's making us holy for the holy city. The original readers of Revelation of the Seven Cities saw those cities become increasingly hostile. They saw their, their secure worlds falling apart. And So hearing this gives them hope. You know, we look around the world today and we're dismayed. Maybe we're a little bit like Isaiah was in the 8th century B.C. King Uzziah is dead, and Isaiah is concerned for the glory of God and he goes to the temple to worship and has this amazing vision of Jesus and, and the glory that we sang about, his holiness, a glory that says fills the whole earth. And that keeps Isaiah going and serving and sharing the good news, as it were, of hope in Jesus. Friends, in a crumbling, hostile world, we turn our eyes to a holy God and we anticipate His holy city, an incredible and beautiful city that we're journeying to. And we seek to live holy lives even now, remembering we're set apart by Jesus to walk by His word on this journey. Friends, this sustains us as hope, This, this gives us strength for the journey. So what is that hope? Uh, let me borrow the words of a song uh, that became popular about a half a century ago. By the way, It was named to the list of top 500 songs of all time, in case you want to know one of the 500. Um, it's a song about a wedding. Uh, we've only just begun. You remember that? When the song begins with the wedding. There's a white lace, promises, and that first kiss. And then the couple goes off on an adventure of life. But then the song ends up this way. And when the evening comes, we smile. So much of life ahead will find a place where there's room to grow. And yes, we've just begun. Well, friends, apply that. When our evening comes, our death or the return of Jesus, we're still going to be able to smile. Because as the bride of Christ, we will have walked with him in this world. And we will still have so much ahead of us in eternity an incredible new heaven, a new earth where there's room to enjoy God and everything about Him is the community of God's people for all eternity. So I would say today, if you're here and you're not a believer, I'll just tell you, you're missing out on the current joy and the future joy. I would urge you to turn to Jesus and be saved. That's the way we begin to bring Him glory. And it begins the process by which He will display His glory in us. Then for those of us who are believers, remember. And be encouraged in a rebellious world. Hang in there. Look ahead. See the city. And keep going. Because we're almost home. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have great hope as your people today. Father, because of Jesus Christ and because of his grace... Because of his death for us on the cross. So, Father, give us hope of that day that's coming. Father, what a day that will be. Or is anybody here that doesn't today have joy in Christ, doesn't know Jesus as Savior, we pray that you'll draw them to him today, to his love, to the cross. And then, Father, for us who are believers, encourage us on our journey. Encourage us, Father, to, to seek that holiness. Father, to walk with Jesus by his word. Father, empowered by the Spirit. Lord, to bring glory to you, to show your glory to the world around us. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.